Welcome to part two of our walking tour of Western Turkey featuring Jezebel's Books of Life and Lukewarm Water. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Okay, we are back, moving east off the coast and ready to complete the final four cities of chapters two and three. We should be able to move through some of these inland cities a bit faster because they show some similar themes to those we've already talked about in the last episode. First city up for today is Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, Thus says the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works and your love and your faith and your service and your nonviolent resistance and your last works are greater than your first. But I have against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and teaches and deceives my servants to commit the sexual offense of prostitution and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, but she does not wish to repent of her prostitution. Indeed, I am throwing her into a sickbed. And I am throwing the ones who commit sexual offense with her into great distress, unless they repent of her works. I will even kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, as many as do not hold to this teaching, who do not know thee, as they say, deep things of Satan, I do not throw another burden upon you. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And as for the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and that one will shepherd them with a rod of iron as when clay pots are shattered. Just as I have received from my father, so I give to him the morning star. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You see some local color in the way that John describes Jesus here. Thyatira was a city that had a thriving bronze and copper industry, with the patron deity of the whole city also being linked to metalworking. And here Jesus is referred to using images like fire and bronze. John on the whole is positive towards the church in Thyatira, but apparently there are some who have been following the teachings of a female prophet, much as in the previous letter there was a male prophet, who's advocating for participating in worship of the emperor. Some, especially feminist scholars, have seen in John's description of Jezebel a healthy dose of misogyny and have reacted against it accordingly. I would say a couple things in John's defense here, and maybe one thing that's more of a critique of sorts. First, John is not slut-shaming here, because as we've said before in Revelation, sex does not equal sex. Sex equals idolatry. John is not accusing Jezebel of being a loose woman, you know, as the kids might say, but rather as an idolater. She's leading the people away from Jesus in the same way that Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament led the people away from Yahweh, which is what John is referencing here. Second, John is not criticizing the church for listening to a woman as if gender is in view. The previous letter, again, speaks in very similar terms about a male prophet. What is in view for John, what is objectionable, is not the gender or sexual activity of this person he is calling Jezebel. It's her message, the message she is preaching, the same message that Balaam was preaching in Pergamum. That's what John is concerned about. Now, 
my word of critique, sort of, and this is an important point about reading the Bible more generally too. If John were writing in the 21st century, I don't think he would use these sorts of images to make his point. John was a relatively educated man in first century Rome. And so when he is writing and wants to make a point, he has available to him the images and literary genres and such that existed in first century Rome. It would be right to criticize a 21st century writer if they were to use the sorts of slut shamey tropes to make their point about a female opponent, just as it would be right to criticize a 21st century writer if they were to call Jews a synagogue of Satan. We have to remember that John is not a 21st century writer. And so while people have misused his words, and while we have come to understand that, among other things, this sort of shaming of female sexuality is kind of pervasive in misogynistic spaces and probably not that great, we can't fairly expect John to have those same understandings. He's writing from the cultural context that he lives in with all the opportunities and limitations that come with that. This is how God works with real humans in real life, limited contexts. In John's vision, Jesus seems to threaten sickness that will come upon Jezebel and her children. First, these are not literal children, but rather the people who have followed her in idolatrous practices. What isn't clear is to what degree the sickness threat is metaphorical and to what degree it's literal. Either is possible, and short of dropping by first century Thyatira, I don't think we're going to get an answer to that one. One last note, John says in verse 24, as many as do not hold this teaching, who do not know thee, as they say, deep things of Satan. Most scholars take this, the deep things of Satan part, to be kind of a play on the claims of Jezebel and her followers. They claim to know the real deep things of God, like the real spiritual stuff that normal people just couldn't comprehend. Paul talks in a similar way about a similar topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Apparently, there was a decently widespread point of view in the first century church that said something along the lines of, well, we have deeper knowledge than you all. So we know that actually eating food sacrificed to idols is just fine. John's saying that isn't deep knowledge that comes from God. That's deep knowledge that comes from Satan. Now, south we go to Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the remaining things that are about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard. Hold to it and repent. If therefore you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me in dazzling splendor, because they are worthy. Thus the one who conquers will be clothed in dazzling clothes, and I will certainly not blot out their name from the book of life. I will acknowledge their name before my father and before his angels. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Sardis, the city, had been largely destroyed in 27 AD by an earthquake and then had been rebuilt through the generosity of Rome. As we said, this in turn would leave the city indebted 
to the benefactors who helped them in their hour of need. And it sheds light on why those who opt out of showing proper honor to those benefactors, like Christians, would be looked at with suspicion and even hostility. One note that relates to what we said earlier, Sardis had a large and affluent Jewish community, but John says nothing negative about them in this letter. We do see John using his usual reversals. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. It's striking to read these letters and think how many parallels there are, both positive and negative, to churches today. Meredith and I know that we have been in churches that have a reputation for being alive, but are actually, in most important respects, dead, and who don't seem to have much interest in waking up, like John pleads with Sardis to do. Blunt uses dazzling splendor to describe the clothes that are literally said to be white in Greek. White clothes were symbols of purity, holiness, and honor in ancient Rome, not because of their color necessarily, but because of their brightness. And that's what Blunt is trying to get at by translating it dazzling splendor rather than white. John also says the one who conquers will not have their name blotted out of the book of life. The image here is of God having a book with the names of those who will be given life eternally. And when people are not faithful to Jesus, but instead participate in the idolatry of Rome, their name gets erased. They no longer will have eternal life. It's possible this is a reference to a practice of the time where names would be entered into a book of all the citizens of a city, but if one was to be executed for a crime, their name would be erased from the citizen's role before they were executed. Craig Kester, the scholar, describes it this way. The scroll imagery has analogies in Greco-Roman practice where communities kept lists of their citizens. Each legitimate child of a Roman citizen was to be registered within 40 days of birth so that the child could receive the benefits of citizenship, such as fair legal treatment and material help. When a person died, the name was listed among the dead. When authorities in some cities passed judgment on a person for a capital crime, that person's name was removed from the list of citizens, and then the death sentence was carried out. With that said, we move down further south to the city of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Indeed, I have set before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have little power, and yet kept my word and did not deny my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews and are not but are lying. Indeed, I will make them come and grovel before your feet, and they will understand that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of nonviolent resistance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come upon the entire inhabited earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may take your crown. As for the one who conquers, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God, and they will never leave it. Moreover, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. A couple passages from the book of Isaiah provide the background for what John says here. First, the key of David that Jesus possesses in this passage is a reference to Isaiah 22, where Eliakim 
is given the keys of the house of David as an image of being in control of who gets access to King David. Jesus then is the one who gives access to God. And we will see this open door image appear again in chapter four. Second, John says that the Jews who have betrayed them will come and grovel at their feet. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. The descendants of those who oppressed you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Except John does the striking thing of taking a promise that the nations who oppressed the Jews will come and bow at the feet of the Jews and turns it into the Jews who have oppressed the followers of Jesus will come and bow at the feet of Jesus's followers. John is saying, those Jews have done to you what the Gentiles had done to them. It seems that in Philadelphia, like in Smyrna, the Christians have been thrown out of the synagogue. And so look at what Jesus promises them in return. I will open the door of access to Yahweh, and then I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You have been shut out of the community in which you used to be able to worship and access God, but God is going to reverse that, making you a permanent fixture in God's presence. Inscribed pillars with names of those of high status written on them were common in temples in that day. And Jesus is using that image to say, you feel like you're nothing now and have been thrown out of the people of God, perhaps. But the day will come when you will be given the highest honor possible of being permanently in God's presence. And now, finally, we go to Laodicea which was inland a bit from Ephesus, where we started, and completes our kind of arch-shaped journey. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and I do nothing. But you do not know that you are miserable and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you might be wealthy and dazzling garments so that you might be clothed and the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. I reprimand and discipline those whom I love. Therefore, be earnest and repent. Indeed, I stand at the door and knock. If someone should hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to that person and I will dine with that one and that person with me. As for the one who conquers, I will allow that one to sit with me on my throne, just as I also have conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Let the one who has an ear hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Before we talk about lukewarm water, Laodicea was, again, a very wealthy, prosperous city. It, in contrast to the previous letter, it was able to rebuild itself after being destroyed by an earthquake without any help from Rome. And we can see that the church in Laodicea has not separated itself out from this wealth, but rather has been seduced by it, saying that, well, since we're rich, we don't need anything. We are all taken care of. And John reverses things again, saying, you, you might think so, but actually you're naked, blind, and poor. 
There are echoes here of Hosea chapter 12, verse 8, where the prophet Hosea portrays Israel in similar terms of, of trusting in their wealth instead of in Yahweh. As always, John is interested in the reality under the surface of things, which so often is the inverse in God's eyes of what it seems like in the world's eyes. Jesus is described in this letter as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin, or this can also mean the ruler of God's creation. These are all terms used of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And John is using them here of Jesus. And he's making a really interesting point about Jesus that intersects with what we talked about in our recent Mission of God series. Humanity, from the very beginning, is given the job of being the ruler over God's creation but we failed at it. Israel is given the job of being a faithful and true witness of who Yahweh is, and they failed at that too. So Jesus, by being the faithful and true witness, the ruler over God's creation, is fulfilling the role that humanity and Israel were supposed to have fulfilled themselves, but that they failed at. In God's plan, humanity and then Israel have a job, to bring God's dream to completion, that the whole world would be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. So when they fail at their job, what now? Throw out the plan? Well, God can't do that. God is faithful. And so Jesus comes as a representative of humanity. It's one of the reasons it's important that Jesus is fully human. And as a representative of Israel, and Jesus fulfills the role humanity and Israel were supposed to play. And in doing that, Jesus ushers in God's new creation, which is what Revelation is all about. And is therefore, Jesus is, the amen, which can mean let it be so. He is the let it be so of God's dream, the one who makes sure God's dream truly happens. By being the faithful and true witness and ruling well over God's creation, Jesus brings about the new creation that God had always intended to bring about through humanity. And now John invites his readers to follow Jesus and participate in that new creation themselves by being like Jesus, faithful witnesses, no matter the consequences. Okay, now to the hot, cold, lukewarm thing. If you're like me, you grew up hearing from a pastor or a youth pastor about how what God hates the most is being lukewarm You can be warm towards God or cold towards God, but do one or the other. Don't just be a wishy-washy nominal Christian who claims to follow Jesus, but then doesn't live it out. And by live it out, we mean inviting people to church or sharing the four spiritual laws or not having sex or not watching rated R movies or, well, I'm sure there were other things too. But uh, while it is certainly true (laughs) that Jesus doesn't much like when people claim to follow him and don't live it out, This is very much not what this passage means. (laughs) There are lots of passages in the Bible that address that idea. The letter to Laodicea is not one of them, at least not the hot, hot, cold, lukewarm part. Now, if you're like me, again, you later in your life heard a pastor preaching on this passage and saying, oh, you have heard it said that this is about nominal Christians, but I say unto you that actually it's about how hot water and cold water are useful and good for drinking, but lukewarm water isn't nice to drink at all, and so you'd spit it out of your mouth. And then they would talk about the water system in Laodicea and how there weren't any reliable local water supplies, and so the water all had to be brought in by aqueduct from either a town called Hierapolis 
a few miles to the north that had mineral hot springs, or from Colossae to the east, which had cold springs. But by the time it got to poor Laodicea, it was lukewarm and gross, especially because of the concentrated mineral content from the hot water from Hierapolis. In fact, both Brian Blunt and N.T. Wright use some version of this explanation to interpret this passage. However, Craig Kester, who I've quoted a couple times here, and I've been reading and preparing for these podcasts, he makes what seems like a fairly airtight case to me against this interpretation. And his argument both makes more sense of the historical evidence and makes more sense of the passage itself, which are both usually pretty good signs when you come across a new interpretation of a familiar passage. I have to admit, though, that this all has made me a little bit confused since neither Blunt nor Wright engage with Kester's argument at all. So I don't know if they haven't seen it or if they disagree with it or what. But Kester points out that this interpretation goes back to a scholar named William Ramsey in the late 19th, early 20th century who noticed the local color in each of the letters to the churches and latched onto that as the key to interpretation of these chapters of Revelation. And then commentaries since he wrote have kind of followed along in focusing on the local differences without much further investigation. Kester thinks this focus on what's different and local in each letter actually makes it harder to see what John thinks is most important, which is the more universal message he has for the whole church about staying faithful to Jesus, which we've talked about before. So here's what Kester says, and you can see if, like me, you find that this makes a whole lot of sense. First, pretty much every city in this region used aqueducts to get their water supply, to some extent. So if lukewarm water was a problem for Laodicea, it also would have been a problem for all of the other cities. Second, and this is maybe the most damning for the other interpretation, the aqueduct that served Laodicea didn't come from Hierapolis or Colossae. So how could they have been getting lukewarm water from either of those other two cities? Third, the water in the mineral hot springs in Hierapolis wasn't for drinking at all. In fact, ancient sources specifically mention it being bad for drinking. Fourth, in contrast to the last one, ancient sources mention Laodicea's water favorably and as good for drinking when compared to the water in Hierapolis. And then fifth, hot water wasn't drunk in Roman culture. Cold water was, but not hot. Just like we don't drink hot water today either. We drink hot coffee, hot tea, not hot water. And this brings us to Kester's alternative interpretation. In ancient banquets, it was normal for the host to offer hot or cold drinks, often heated wine or wine cooled by pouring it through snow held in sort of a colander. Those of us who have, you know, drunk things ever in our lives know that there's something refreshing about a cold drink when you're hot or a hot drink when you are cold that just can't compare to room temperature. Lukewarm drinks are just like the surrounding temperature. They're too similar to be refreshing. Kind of like how the church that goes along with the idolatrous worship practices of the surrounding culture isn't refreshing in the way Jesus intends for it to be. The reason this is helpful in our understanding of the passage is that it connects to the promise Jesus offers at the end of this little letter. The one who resists the pull of the culture is the one who opens the door 
and who invites Jesus to come in and dine with them. John is writing this whole letter with a banquet theme running through it. It doesn't have anything to do with water supplies. Jesus desires to dine with you. So offer him the gift of being cold or hot, like a good drink would be, different from the surrounding culture, instead of being lukewarm, which will make him want to spit you out. John may also have in mind here Leviticus 18 and 20, which say that if the people of Israel don't follow Yahweh, the promised land itself will vomit them out of the land. So that might be a background of this image as well. Okay, certainly more could be said, but since we already had to make this a part two, I think this might have been more than enough already. But this brings us to the end of these letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And as I said at the top, I want to reiterate now that we have had a chance to go through these chapters together. John uses a number of metaphors, images, local references, biblical allusions, promises, threats, encouragements, all to communicate the same basic message. Number one, Jesus is the one with power who deserves honor and faithfulness in contrast to Rome and Caesar. Number two, some of you are staying faithful to Jesus, but others have been distracted and have gone after the promises of wealth and power that Rome offers if we will worship them instead. Number three, those who stay faithful can be assured that despite appearances currently, they have true life, true wealth, true honor waiting for them with God, while those who do not stay faithful will find that Rome's promises are empty and there will be no life, no wealth, no power found in trusting them. And as I said before, that is as much a message for us today as it was for the people in the province of Asia around the turn of the first century. To what extent do we stay faithful to Jesus, trusting him to protect and provide for us? And to what extent do we compromise that faith so we can accommodate to the gods of the world around us, believing their lies about what will protect and provide for us? Every culture, every generation has to ask and wrestle with that question, which is why, as we've seen in Jeremiah, in Matthew, now in Revelation, and we'll see in the new year when we dive into the book of Deuteronomy. That's the central question that the Bible asks again and again. Who do you trust? Yahweh or idols? Thanks for joining me for these episodes. We'll be back next time with a look at chapters four and five of Revelation, where things start turning a bit weirder, but not too weird. That, that gets saved for chapter six. <laughs> so read ahead for the chapter four and five episode, and I will see you then. Bye. Bye.